Welcome to Hallel Fellowship, found on the internet at hallel.info. That's H-A-L-L-E-L dot I-N-F-O. We hope you are encouraged by the following recorded Bible study to look deeper into every word that proceeds from the mouth of God and how they were lived out in the life of Yeshua HaMashiach, often called Jesus the Christ. Vayeshev means uh, he settled, and it covers Genesis chapter 37 through 40. Of course, we also looked at some great passages from the prophets there in, in Amos chapter 2 and 3, and then also over in Isaiah chapter 52 and 53, the great uh, prophecy of the Messiah in, in Isaiah 53. Then we also saw the companion passages there of the birth of Yeshua and the foretelling of that, and also in John chapter 1 there, talking, and that is a, a great encapsulation of who Yeshua is, where Yeshua came from, and also about really the whole trajectory of the, the gospel message, the recording of Yeshua's life, and how he would be received, who he was, and how he would be received in this. So, um, with that, some of the, the great takeaways of this particular passage is that this betrayal that we just have read about here in the passage Vayeshev, there Genesis 37, and especially 37, but going on through chapter 40, and as we'll see, it continues on through the end of Genesis, so it'll carry on into our next Torah reading next week as well through the end of the book, is this long discussion of Yosef. And we see that there is this great parallel between the account of Yosef and the account of Yeshua. And as you could see, that there was a forerunner, a forerunner of Yeshua. And you could say, also, what was to be expected when the Messiah would show up, there was two witnesses we read about the first one in vayashev the second one we just read in isaiah there were two witnesses as to a warning to israel that just like yosef would come in and would be come in a manner that would be difficult to receive difficult for the brothers of israel to receive so too the messiah would come in in a way that would be difficult for the brothers to receive. And that was a, you could say, a warning, but also something that when the, the apostles and the followers of Yeshua could look back, they could say, oh, we look back not only on what we have recorded in the Gospels, but also what we have recorded in the Tanakh, the Torah, the prophets, and the writings. It's been called the Hebrew Scriptures, also called the Old Testament. All in that, you see what this witness of who, who the Messiah was going to be. And not only, you see, not only for the people of Israel, but for everybody, the nations as well. Because just as Yosef, Joseph was going to be a great blessing 
for his brothers, he was also going to, in the course of blessing his brothers and his family, saving them from the famine that was coming. We'll read about it in the next Torah section. But also, in that case, saving one of the great superpowers of the time period. So, to put that in perspective, that would be like a small group of people. We're talking a small group here. Um, 70 people. We'll read about that in the next passage. So, imagine... 70 people came over to the United States, superpower of the time period. And because of God's blessing of one family or one group of people, 70 people, God just, by the way, happens to save the United States too. So the United States in this story scenario gets saved because of the mercy and the blessings shown upon this one family. So thus, you see, this goes all the way back to what we read in Genesis chapter 15, this prophecy that was given to Avraham, to Abraham, that through you, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. This is a continuation of the same thing. So through Abraham, the world would be blessed. Through Yitzhak, the world would be blessed, his son. Through Yaakov, through Jacob. The world would be blessed because through Jacob comes Yosef and also Yehuda, Judah. Both of those come through. So what you're seeing here is that this great explanation that you see or this revelation, this prophecy, this foretelling that the world is going to be blessed by grabbing hold of the people of the people of Israel, the descendants of Avraham, that this blessing would be something that the whole world would benefit from. And then we see that we here today are sharing in that blessing that came down through Yosef. Because the only reason why we know any of this is because of what? The descendants of Avraham through Yitzhak, through Yaakov, what they preserved that was revealed to them from heaven down to Avraham's family into all the worlds. Uh, yes, Rose, you have a comment or a, a question over there. Do we hear any more about Tamar's twins? Well, you hear about one of them. And one is Perez or Perez. Yes, that's, that's one because there's a few notable people who came through there. Uh, one of which is, uh, yeah, great, thank you. Uh, one, one of which is uh, David and then Messiah. So, yes, we hear about Perez later. Yes, go okay, ahead, Deborah. Um, you know, Joseph, I mean, when they're in that, back to there, um, the Ishmaelites and the um, what was it, the Amorites, the Ishmaelites? And it, it said first, it said the Ishmael, Joseph was sold to the Ishmaelites, and then, then it the was Midianites. A, the Midianites. So is that, are that all, is that all Ishmael's clan, that group? Well, that's a great that, observation because you know, people this, have been, that, and this. yeah, people have noticed that for hundreds of years, right. and nobody has actually come up with a good question or a good answer on that. Uh, there's, 
some people have come up with ideas on what was happening. I think one of the most one of the most inventive ones I heard that that goes along this realm is that <laughs> that the Midianites were releasing the camels from the Ishmaelites. So whatever. So there there are people there are, there are people that have come up with different ideas, but also look about the 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 other side of this equation through Midian and through Ishmael. Who do they go back to? Abraham. They go back to Abraham. So basically, you see that Ishmael, even though he was sent off to become kind of a separate line, he, in a sense, had a way and a hand in this blessing that was going to come back to Abraham's family proper through, through, um, through Yitzhak, through Ishmael's brother, Isaac, and then through Jacob, and then to Yosef, and then down to Egypt, saving the whole family, bringing them all back in, and being a blessing, a continual blessing in for the world. Yes. So it, it's just kind of an interesting thing where you see the uh, continuation of a blessing. So whether it was Ishmael or whether it was Midian, together both of them have a lineage that goes back to Avraham. So kind of a very interesting way that the blessing continued on through the family, even if it didn't come through the direct family, it came kind of a side, side way around. But one of the ways that you see that another picture is, is that Yosef, even though he's one of the youngest, he's like the second youngest ends up. At this time, he is the youngest son of Yaakov or of Jacob. What? Oh, yes. Sorry. Yes. So he then becomes an anchor. He becomes an anchor for the rest of the family. So what you see is a continuing picture that comes in of the a continuing picture of a younger of the family becoming greater than the older. A younger becoming an anchor for the older. One that's seen as lesser or less powerful being an anchor for the whole family or being something that even the older one would um, see as a blessing. So as we look at the various sections, we've kind of got four buckets that almost break up into the chapters, which is sort of how this was done ancient time period. They, they tried to do these chapter divisions somewhat thematically. As we move on in the Bible, you'll see that some of the chapter breaks break up thematic ideas, but oftentimes the chapters somewhat break them up into themes and theme of chapter 37 is is that you know you have the joseph has his two dreams his two key dreams that he has at the beginning and then you see that his brothers they start scheming about what they're going to do about this in chapter 38 you see this interesting thing it looks like a complete non sequitur in there of Yehuda going off on a side trip. And if you kind of add up the years, <laughs> that's, a, that's a very long side trip that's going on here of the, the time period involved. Because you're talking about generations of people growing up in the <laughs> chapter 38. So it, it's quite a long time that's being talked about there. 
In chapter 39, you have uh, Yosef and versus Potiphar's wife and then versus prison. Then in chapter 40, you see that Yosef is interpreting the dreams, these two dreams of two of his fellow's <laughs> prison mates there in the prison, and he interprets the dreams. And it's just kind of the way this ends, it's kind of an almost anticlimactic where it's just like, ah, they, they went on, you know, one didn't have such a great end. Another one got a great uh, promotion out of jail. But then Joseph is just left there. And we'll see the continuation uh, next time around. Yes, uh, Diane? So, so I want, want to say something about um, Genesis 39.3. What I thought was so beautiful about Joseph's walk with God after all he had been through was that the Potiphar saw that the master, God, was with Joseph and made him successful in everything he did. But in the Talmud, it, it reads something like the name of God was on his lips. And I just, that just stuck with me forever, has stuck with me for a long time. I don't know if anyone, if you can hear me, but the name of God was on his lips. That meant he was in his heart. And everything that Joseph did, he did like a prayer unto God. And, and uh, in spite of everything that has happened to him. And I just praise God for that kind of an example. Yep. Oh. It definitely became quite the uh, rock for the family and Thanks, also for Egypt. Yes, uh, Deborah, go ahead, please. Oh, okay, so um, what I've learned that um, when we see, you know, um, the baker and the um, cupbearer is that when it mentions the word third day, it's a clue for us to to be aware of the um, the resurrection on the third day, and some of us will be raised to life, and some will be raised to the birds having a lovely feast. Mm. You know, it was one of the clues that one of the uh, rabbis um, brought out, but it was really fascinating. And that um, you know, the firstborn is our flesh, and then if we're so fortunate to hear God, that the secondborn is our spirit. So that's maybe most of us are working towards that goal is that the second flesh, the spirit, um, while being developed at the seed and hearing the word of God, that we will be um, resurrected and into the kingdom of God. And what he does pretty much is guesswork because it's in there. We'd all, a lot of us are alive from what I see, the studies um, are inferring. And because I know in the book of Daniel, God said to close this up until the time of the end, and we don't know the end, but we assume it's getting close. But, I mean, if we really look around, things are bad in pockets, but not like you can look in your neighborhood and say, oh, my God, I'm afraid to go outside. Most of us, anyway. Some could live in dangerous neighborhoods, but I kind of use that as a gauge. But there's so much in this um, in these uh, scriptures, our Torah portions, that um, it's kind of hard to study quickly. I mean, if you really look at it, in each one, and you have them put here, it's like, there's so, so much. Uh, and I feel really blessed to be worldwide, where God's people are all sitting over the three days, you know, Friday night and Saturday night, that for God, he gets six days out of it, cause, or six, I don't, you know, because their time zone is different than ours, and I'm thinking, wow, isn't that amazing how, you know, people are petitioning the Most High God, and we're studying his Torah portions that, you know, he set up, so... I mean, we're all dwelling and thinking about the kingdom, the government to come. 
Yeah, and you, you do bring up a very interesting point because one of the things that you'll you'll see some some people will um, take a look at prophecies in Daniel or Revelation and um, will will take it to be ways that you can kind of unlock the times of the end. Rather, one of the and a good example of this is the book of Revelation itself because Revelation draws heavily from the book of Ezekiel. So basically what Revelation is telling you is that if you understand Ezekiel and what Ezekiel is saying, you'll understand what Revelation is saying. So then the corollary is, is that when Daniel is saying these things are sealed up for the time of the end, for Daniel, he was living amongst, you know, he went through Babylon and he was living into Persia. He never saw Greece. He never saw the kingdom after Greece, Rome. He never saw what came out after Rome, never did. But one of the things that that's a message to is for those people who do live through those, what then is the lesson? Just like it was for Daniel, just like it was for Yosef, is that there might be a big player on the block, the superpower, the empire. But they are just servants of the kingdom of heaven. So just like we were talking about Mitzrayim, Egypt would be blessed just because Yosef and his family would be there because Yosef was there. He planned to get them through the famine. He set things up to get them through the famine. So this superpower was blessed because of the presence of the Lord working through someone who was in prison started out in prison and started out as a slave, then came in to save the country. So thus, when you're saying Daniel, when you read the book of Daniel, came in as a slave and saved the country, <laughs> saved two empires that he served and he lived through. So that is a testimony that these things are sealed up for the time of the end. So when you get down and you read like Revelation 2 and 3, and it talks about those seven congregations, and it keeps saying again and again, the one who can stand until the end, he will receive the crown. The one who stands until the end, he will be saved. So thus, when you look back and you see what the Lord has done in these previous situations, and for example, we're coming up on the time of Hanukkah, and we can look back and see that, hey, you had somebody who came in and said, specifically passed laws and said, you cannot worship God. So thus, you're then faced. The people of that generation were faced with, what do we do? Do we just capitulate, go along with it, save our necks? Or do we say, hey, we only serve one king. But in the process, there can be an ugly backlash against people who stand up. We see backlash against Yosef here being thrown into prison, but you can see also that you can suffer worse. But as Yeshua has told us, hey, don't fear the one who what? Take your flesh. Yes, fear the one who can take both body and flesh. So thus, you see the big picture of it. 
So thus, when you are seeing this being sealed up for the time of the end, when you start seeing the things show up, when you start seeing the multiple abominations of desolation where the house of God is, you know how to react to it. React to it like the Maccabean era. What do you do with it? Do you say, no, I'm sorry. I can't go along with it. If I perish, I perish. Those are the examples. So you know, you can look back to what Yosef went through. For even in a small little microcosm, you as a young male, if you're in a situation, know how you're going to respond. Because when you end up in a situation like Yosef did with Potiphar's wife, that's not the time to decide. The time to decide is before that happens. So then you know what to do. So just like with prophecy, when these things come down hard, and when, as Revelation says, you will not be able to buy or sell unless you have a mark, unless you have the mark of the adversary's kingdom on you. We've seen examples of this throughout history and throughout the Bible, throughout prophecy. We've seen these examples before. So that when these things show up on our own life, we know what to do about it. I mean, for example, you know, we've seen this here in our own state. In the past couple of years, you've had the local authorities say, you, church, cannot open. What do you do about that? You open anyway. You go outside. You do this. You do that. And one of the things that we say is an example of that is, you see like in the book of Hebrews when it talks about in uh, chapter 11 and chapter 10 about not forsaking the congregation together as some are accustomed to. Because why? It's thought that perhaps Hebrews was written somewhere in the AD 60 time period. Well, if you kind of know your uh, history a little bit of the Bible, AD 60, things were going downhill fast in the Holy Land. The rebellions were starting to pick up. Rome was getting irritated about it, and they were about to drop the hammer. And they were about to drop a really big hammer. And destroy Jerusalem, destroy the temple. And what we see there today is <laughs> the result of that. They took it down, took it totally off the platform of where it was. So when you saw those things happening, what then do you do? Yeshua warned about them. The prophets warned about them. We have passages like you see here with Yosef. He shows you what you do about the situation. We are seemingly small players, but you can see that the people of God can be seemingly small, insignificant players, but whole empire being here. Both prophecy for uh, Avraham is, who blesses you, I will bless, heaven says. Who curses you, I will curse. So that is both a 
you know, warning to the world and also a, you could say, an encouragement for the world to say, hey, the people of God are a blessing for the world. You are wise to at least consider that they can bless you. You may not realize why they're blessing you or what the full outcome of that blessing will be, but realize when they are a blessing. So we're seeing somewhat of a realization of uh, the nation of China realizing that the people of God in their midst and uh, cursing them by cracking down on them, not such a great thing for them because the people of God are what? Taught to be great citizens. But again, just like with Acts, it says, you know, we must follow God and not man. So just like in the Maccabean period, if you've got someone like an Antiochus or somebody and saying, hey, you, you stop following God's words. When it says man will live by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God, no, not anymore. You're not going to live by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. In fact, you're going to live by every word that proceeds out of my mouth, says the great power that comes along. But the example that we have through so many different ways is you have to say no. We will follow God's ways. But to do what? To be a blessing for the world around us. Because there is also what, what has come to be known as what they call uh, either Jerusalem syndrome or Messiah syndrome, where some people will go to Jerusalem and get a Messiah complex and then get a, also known as a martyr complex. Well, they'll say that any opposition to anything they do is a sign that uh, they are rebelling against the kingdom of God. Well, is that really true? Are we being a blessing for the world? Or are we acting on our own might and running up against our own correction in this? Because like we've been talking about a lot, the Apostle Yaakov, another Yaakov, much later, in the book of James, gives us a hint that, hey, when you're facing adversity, ask for wisdom to know why it is happening. Why is this happening? Is it because something I'm doing that's causing this to keep happening to me or has brought this upon myself for correction of myself? Or did I do something that's brought this upon me because you have the the realm of the adversary is railing against the kingdom of God. That might be why it's happening. Then at that point, you're kind of like in the point of like Yosef deciding what he's going to do with Potiphar's wife's advances, what the people of the Maccabean era are going to do with the edict that comes down that says, hey, stop doing this Torah stuff. Yes, Anne. Oh, sorry. There you go. Go ahead. How, ma how many years was uh, Joseph in the prison? Wow, that's, that is a good question. People have uh, done some estimates of that. It, it is several years, you could say. Several years. There are people who have estimated one way or the other, but it was several years he was there. 
Yes, in the prison cell. Yes, he was had been living in there 17 years when he finally ascended up there. So from the time he was sold into to the time he ascended up to high office was like 17 years. So So All right. Any other uh, thoughts before we move on further? Uh, yes, Deborah. About the eunuch and this um, the, the, the some eunuchs? stuff that you brought out about the similarities between uh, Tamar and Potiphar's wife. Was it that, ah. that your? I didn't know he was a eunuch, and that you know deny you know the consequences of denying. Uh, you know. Yes. Oh, that's, oh, that's okay. right. Because I thought that was really interesting because um, that we, things that do happen in our lives. Um, uh, the accountability of it is that when you're denying your spouse, I think there's more a lot for married people that sometimes the consequences you bring in your marriage are brought on by even if the person, you know, their behavior. Mm. I don't know if that was you, but I thought it was really good. Yeah. No, I didn't know they were eunuchs. That, that is a, a possibility of it. And you see some echoes of that in the account there of Yehuda. Because right. you notice a little time frame of his wife dies. Right. And then he ends up there uh, on his way to Timna and encounters his uh, daughter-in-law unaware. Yeah. So, I mean, she was more righteous, it yeah. said, because so, of so that. It's, it, it's, it's one of those things. We'll, we'll be getting into that a little bit more as we chug along here. But that's oh. one of those things that, just, just like with anybody who's dealing with substance abuse, that you have to know when you're at your weakest point, And at that point, watch out. When are you most likely to be lured away into whatever your challenges are? And at that point, watch out because that is when you're most susceptible to it. So that's a part of, you know, when you are facing trials, part of that is in the, the modern approach to it with the 12-step programs where you're doing a very specific thing of taking a spiritual inventory of yourself, learning your triggers, learning your, uh, the pitfalls that you fall into all the time, and see when they are coming. Because that does what? It's just like what James 1 talks about, is through those experiences of knowing where your pitfalls are, knowing where your weaknesses are, and then seeing those things coming and then acting before you fall into them, that then builds what? It builds perseverance. It builds maturity. You then become a mature person. You're no longer thrown back and forth by whatever proclivities or pitfalls you've had in your life. You see them coming. You know what to do when you see them coming. And when they get there, yeah, run. <laughs> yes. So, so one of the things that uh, we'll come move on into chapter 37 a bit more is that you've got these two main characters there. You've got the, really the house of Yehuda and the house of Yosef, these two characters. And these will show up throughout the word. And you'll see that down in the prophetic books. And eventually you'll see <laughs> being a split between uh, north and south Israel, the northern kingdoms. Those are centered around which tribe? Ephraim. Ephraim, who is what? A 
son of who? Yes, son of Yosef. And who's the southern tribe? Centers around which tribe? Judah, Yehuda. So there we go. Those being centered against each other. Now, it's, it's very interesting that you have, um, it, it, that in itself is a lesson. The northern tribes did not hold to, hold fast to the heritage that they had. They went off, drug in stuff from the other nations into their beliefs with the, the calves in north and south. The bringing in the prophets of Baal, the, the, prophet, the prophetesses of Asherah, mixed them in, blended it up, confused the people, created a whole separate set of appointed times, <laughs> different from the uh, schedule of the times that the Lord gave. So that came from the legacy. They came from the legacy of Yosef. But did they actually carry the legacy of Yosef? No, they didn't. They didn't. It's uh, something very similar to what you see when we went over just a few weeks ago on Romans chapter 1. We get the legacy to us of how things actually started. In Eden, the creator, the two trees. But if we don't, see that that legacy that's down to us, where we come from, is of that importance, then we're led off to think something else created us. Something else. Either whether that be some sort of idol, some other power, the modern, more modern ideas, which are actually quite ancient ideas that things just make themselves, come out of nothing. So... And so, yes, we can, we can see that uh, even as we see go on with Yosef, when he takes, as we see in chapter 37, he has these dreams. And where does he go with each of these dreams? He goes to his brothers. And his brothers, they know what the meaning is. They, they get the point of the dream that he has about the sheaves right off then he has the dream of the sun moon and the stars and he takes that to his parents his father <laughs> recognizes right away what that's about and so he get rebuffed from both sides both from his brothers saying what you're saying that we are going to serve you you know we the older ones are going to serve you the younger one and that we, the older ones, are now going to serve you, the younger, and the favored one among all of them, among all of the brothers. And then you see the father says also, hey, are you saying that we, your, your mother and your father, are going to bow down to you and serve you? But then it kind of leaves in a little message there. But he took that to heart, or he kept it for reflection is another way. Something, you see something else also interesting. Where do you see that, that kind of a phrase mentioned also? Yes, uh, Anne, you have a comment or a question there. Go ahead. This is when the angel Gabriel goes to Mary. Aha. And she, yes. She didn't understand about 
about, I think, the, you know, the, the baby that was coming to her, but she kept it, pondered, pondered it in her mind. Right, right. Yes. Right. She kept those things and were pondering them in her heart to say, well, what is this actually going to result from? To kind of keep that, say, hey, maybe the Lord is doing something that we don't understand. I'm, I'm kind, of, kind of grading against this, but maybe this is something that God is doing that we just don't quite understand. It's out of our realm of really thinking that this is possible. Oh, uh, sorry, yes, go ahead. There's another event, too, that's interesting where um, one of, is it Gamaliel or something yes. that says, uh, exactly. you know, be careful that you don't fight against God. Be careful about this because we may be actually fighting against God in this. Yes. And he was right, you know. Yes. And that's, and that's indeed what we were getting at when we were looking at, you see that through Yosef, and through the prophecy of the Messiah that we have in Isaiah 52, 53, and some companion passages that we have in Isaiah and some other prophets, that yes, there were these witnesses of, yes, the Messiah is going to come. And yes, he's going to come to his brothers, so to speak, and his brothers are going to reject him. Even throw him in a pit. Throw him in a pit within kind of intending him to die. Yes, exactly like the Mashiach, the throw, throw them in a pit. And we'll see that as the, in our next passage, where Pharaoh goes to the prison to get Yosef, he's not talked about being in a prison anymore. He says, go get him out of the pit. So it's like, that's a very obvious hint that's being put here is that, hey, this is a very similar situation to where Yosef went into the pit, his brothers threw him into the pit, but he was then pulled out of the pit. Yes. Uh, yes, go ahead, Anne. Oh, you know, I, I didn't realize it, but I, I heard just recently that the pit that Joseph was thrown into in the desert there in the wilderness is a, it said it was a dry place. Well, that's where snake, yep. snakes go, into yeah. dry places. Yeah. And well, it, it could even be asps or, you know, poisonous snakes. <laughs> so, so, I mean, the Lord was really with Joseph, you know, yeah. all these snakes all around him. And he cried out, he cried out, you know, to get out. But God was there, just like he, he closed the mouths of the lions when uh, Daniel was thrown into the lion's den. Yeah. Yeah, so in, into a, and you could see that even further than just going into that one cistern, the dry cistern he was thrown into, but where he was thrown ultimately was into the pit of Mitzrayim. Because you think you're going to just send him down there and now nah, you never see him again. Well, as we're going to see in the next section, wow, look at who shows up again. But then you see the, the, the picture that happens with this seemingly strange uh, vignette that shows up in chapter 38, this section that just doesn't seem like it fits with Yehuda and Tamar. It just seems like a, a very 
sometimes you just wish you could just flip the page because it's just so <laughs> it's uh, definitely not a PG part of the Bible by any means. But one of the things that you notice in there is that Yehuda, this vignette, he was the one who was the ringleader of this, of, hey, let's sell him off. Well, Rubain, you know, had thought he was kind of doing a delaying action of actually killing him. So into a cistern, they threw him. And then you would have said, hey, let's sell him. Let's sell him off into slavery. So then you see that there was the deception that they did with their father. So before you had Yaakov, what was he known for? Deceiving his father. His mo- mama made him do it, yes. Mama made me do, do it, yes. But you see that he had deceived his father, you know, even putting on uh, the clothes of Esau, even making his skin feel like Esau, to come through and change his appearance. And you see the very interesting picture in the words that, that um, Yitzhak is saying to his sons, like, well, I don't quite recognize you because the voice is of Yaakov, but you feel, you seem like Esau. Yes. You know, uh, and then Alex, go ahead. Back to uh, Yehuda. You know, I mean, the guy's given off his personal signet and stuff <laughs> to what he thinks is a prostitute because she said so. And look at Joseph. You, he could have justified, hey, I've got to do this, you know, to preserve us. I've got to get with the king's wife. You know, you could almost justify it, but he didn't. And Yehud is like, yo, dude, you know, not good. <laughs> yeah. I did yes, want to talk ahead. about that, too. You know, and I thought about that. That was a lot to give up because that's your signia. Your, that's your everything. It was like if he was got rid of all that, um, he would just scratch out like Esau his whole uh, identity. You know what I mean? Because that ring, yeah, your was, seal, that seal yes. is everything and, and when the, you move about the, the land. The staff is usually staff, carved yeah. in with the name of the they person their to clan, whom it belongs. You know, they, yes. you know, in the wrong writing, in the staff, they um, carved out their history from the very tip to the bottom of their adventures or their problems or whatever, they say that they carved out and that staff, like, you know, say he was born in his experiences. It was like a, um, like a tablet of reading or something. You yes. Know? It was, it was a yeah, sign of authority. Both of those were signs, the signs of authority. So you see this in the, <laughs> that you have a offering of a goat. The goat was brought in to put the blood on the coat to present it to the father. And then you see Yehuda's bringing back a goat because that's what, you know, Tamar had asked for. But the surety was his identity, his authority. He just gave it over. Kind of sounds like the birthright to a certain degree because his whole authority of who he is, he just gave over. To this. So, a very interesting thing that 
he then says there in Genesis 38:26 that she is more righteous than I am. In a sense, you could see a comparison you'll see later on in Israel's history between Shaul or Saul and David, David. Between those two, you see later out in 1 Samuel 24, you'll see a stark contrast of them. Who was really had the the authority, the leadership, sensibilities, and actual heart of a leader? Was it Shaul, who looked like a leader? He was tall, you know, he seemed powerful, and this and that, and the other. But David was what? Of the sons of Yesi, he was youngest, yet again picked as the most significant. And you see that the prophet, Shemuel Samuel, he goes through the sons of Yesi and he sees, hey, wait a minute. Don't you have any others? Because it's like, you would think, okay, you're going to go and you're going to pick from the sons of Yesi. And you would see on the outside, here they are, choose between one of these. But heaven told him, it's not one of these. So a very interesting lesson that we should be very careful in just looking on the outs- outward appearance because you see later on the prophet is saying, hey, you look on the outside, but what does God look for on the heart? He looks on what's going on in the inside. Uh, yes, Alex. And also with those guys, uh, if you're so worried about the guy who's going to take your job so much that you're thinking <laughs> he is better than me, um, you know, right on down to Herod doing the same thing. David didn't do that. I mean, mm. David, you know, he was, he, he would not even challenge his own son who wanted to, wanted the uh, crown. He never worried about it till the day, the day he couldn't perform and just kind of laid in bed. Said, I'm, I'm done. So, uh, that's, that's a heck of a different way of going out. Saul's chasing this kid around the wilderness. <laughs> Come on. So one of the things that you see in the account in chapter 38 is a lot of people have noticed that Yehuda could have taken the easy way out. He could have, quote, saved face. Just let Tamar go right to be burned and that would have burned up the evidence and everything, and it would have been gone. But he had a decision to make at that point. He was presented here. It's quite obvious as to the evidence that being presented as to what happened in the situation. Now he's got to face up to what he did and what he was about to do. And then to... Uh, yes, uh, Sam, uh, you have a comment or a question over there. Yeah, I, I think uh, this, uh, you know, the, the action of um, uh, uh, Judah uh, reminded of uh, the proverb uh, that said, whoever covers his sin shall not prosper. Uh, I believe maybe it's in proverb or somewhere there. Mm. But because uh, the reason why Judah, I believe, was choosing later on above uh, you know Ephraim or Joseph 
was because of you know something like this you know to accept that you know I, I'm, I'm guilty you know he's a he's a man in authority and he could just you know do the cover-up and just destroy the evidence yep and uh, another thing that he reminded me of is you know when the they brought the prostitute before the master and he said to them whoever that has never committed anything let it be the one you know that would first stone him so he said one by one and they all left so that conviction uh you know lived through the generation because one can prove to be righteous and cast a stone yeah you know self-righteousness but they all felt guilty and they dropped the stone and and walk away and i and i think the seed that judah you know that was you know planted that to come out being uh vulnerable you know it, it lives on you know in the generation to come which i believe is a, is a lesson to you know for all of us to uh to just come out when we it's okay to say you know i'm guilty uh, yes. you know to to just face because when we do that we shut the enemy down we kill the seed that will, you know the enemy will have continued to water and grow down the line and so the the action of judah really you know it's uh i learned a lot from that whenever i read that passage of the scripture yeah yeah because you know you see the the opposite sort of reaction like with um when the when yeshua you know raised lazar lazarus from the dead what did they want to do to Lazarus? Kill him. Why? Because he's walking, talking evidence of really where the power of God was, was acting. So that's a, that's a terrible lesson. And, you know, telling you to talk about those lessons that stick with you. You know, my first real job interview that I ever had was, uh, you know, back in college, I was working as an intern at a, a publishing company, and I was working in as a uh, copy editor, which is someone who's supposed to catch all of the grammatical spelling mistakes, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, um, before things go into print. So usually, you've got two or three um, sets of eyes that go and they go over a situation. Well, problem was, is I was burning the candle at both ends there in college, and I literally fell asleep on the job. I literally fell asleep while I was proofreading and missed something egregious. And it was caught by the folk at the other side. This is back in the days when they used to actually um, have somebody that made that... Uh, took pictures of the layouts and then made metal plates that would then go into printing press and such like that. Now it's just straight, either straight to the press or they, you press print like on your, on your computer. And instead of it going to paper, it goes right to a plate that goes right on the press. Well, those people, they're caught to the mistake and they're like looking at it backwards in a negative. And they saw it. It was so glaring that they're like, really? So then it got back to my bosses. So my first job interview was, you know, I went there and you do like what you usually do. What are your, you know, 
with your accomplishments, with your skills, this and that and the other. And, um, but then the person said, well, but you did this. And I didn't just say, well, yeah, I really screwed up. I tried to explain my way out of it. And needless to say, I didn't get the job. But that taught me the thing is like, okay, well, if there's no way that, you know, they know what you did. You know what you did. So why not just fess up to it and just say, well, okay, I learned that thing again is that, you know, you can't be going into a job or you're supposed to be paying attention and you're not able to pay attention. So thus, if you're in that kind of situation, you need to either just say, I, I'm done, I got to take a break, I got to slap myself in the face or something or other, stick my head in a bucket of ice water. But hey, I'm just uh, not able to continue on in this role. But to just say, hey, I made a mistake. Now, when we have someone in leadership who can just say, hey, you know, I made a mistake, and this is what I'm going to do about that. One of the things, the great things about David is Psalm 51, which is a very poetic way of saying, wow, I really screwed up. I messed up big time. And someone, someone is dead, and then a child is dead. Um, yeah, I, I messed up really, really, really badly. So what is it then that you do about it? What is it that needs to change? I you know, need to change on the inside. David says, I need to change on the inside. A contrite heart is what you want. The offerings, the sacrifices, are the outward demonstration of what has happened on the inside. So when we get into the last parts of Exodus and then into Leviticus and we start looking at the tabernacle and you start seeing the offerings in there, those are demonstrations of what has happened on the inside. So like you see at the beginning part of Matthew chapter 18, before, you know, we all know about the, the dispute resolution part of Matthew 18, but earlier on there it talks about, hey, if you have something against somebody or somebody's got something against you, before you go and present a shalom, shalomim offering, saying, hey, we're at peace, heaven and earth, we're at peace, nothing between us anymore. Well, there sort of is something because somebody's got something against you. You need to go and resolve it, then come back. Because offering the gift is what? It is an outward demonstration of something that is happening on the inside. It's the same lesson that you have in Mark chapter 7 with the hand washing. You know, when we talk about and have hand washing each time, that is okay, yeah, when you're going to grab bread, probably a good idea to get the schmutz off your hands or whatever. So functionally, yeah, you want to wash your hands and clean them. But really what you're talking about is that, hey, if you are going to be saying, I want to come and be really a part of the body of God, clean hands and what? And a clean heart. Yes, your mind and the things that drive you have got to be clean. 
So then the inside is clean, as Yeshua said. The inside of the dish, the outside of the dish. And get your priorities straight. It's the same message in the book of Isaiah, when you see Isaiah chapter 1, when he's talking about, you know, I hate your feasts. And then he's talking later on about the feasts. And we read it every week in there in Isaiah 58, talking about, call the Shabbat a delight. Well, obviously, he didn't think the Shabbat was a hate. He didn't hate that. But what was the problem? The problem was what was happening in the inside of the people and what they were bringing. Mm -hmm. uh, yes. Is that uh, you, Diane? It's me. Sorry. <laughs> oh, go ahead. And that I... I I wanted to say something. So what if a believer in Messiah sincerely, genuinely tries to make things right with others or another because they want that because that person wants unity and wants the Spirit of God to flow, wants what the righteousness of Yeshua and that um, and peace amongst people and that other person just simply doesn't say anything. They don't do anything. What I mean, we have to go on in our walk, regardless of whether they say or don't, that person or person say or don't say anything, but it just chokes the Holy Spirit, the heck out of the Holy Spirit. I, I don't see how the body can really operate. Uh, a person may, you may want what's right, and you may take all those steps to do it, but if the other person or persons are not willing, that's, that's a big deal. I mean, it can be, and that in it, and it, it's very hurtful. What, do you, what would you do if you had that happen to you and you wanted to do that and the person just wouldn't even acknowledge you and acknowledge what you were saying? Yeah, well, it's like, what Paul advises, you know, for as much as it's within your power, live at peace with people. But, but some some things are just out of our control. You know, some people you just have to keep uh, praying for a change of heart. And sometimes it yes. may take a long, long, long time for that to happen. Yes, and and it means his love has to move in and through not only the one doing the praying who got hurt but also the other person who says they belong to the Messiah and they serve him. And I guess I have a problem with that. It's like, you know, either a person you either, uh, Dr. J. Vernon McGee was an old-time Bible preacher, and he used to say, he's passed away now from several, many years, and he used to say, you're either a saint or you're an ain't. And, uh, <laughs> and either... You know him, and he got that thing from old Henry Irons, uh, was it Henry Ironside, who was another old-time Bible preacher that um, many commentaries, um, many of you or some of you may have seen or didn't know what, you know, realize what you're looking at. I mean, we either know him or we don't. I mean, we all have to grow. We're all growing at different rates. Anyway, I don't want to go on about it any more than I have, but it breaks my heart because we, we hurt God when we don't love our brother or sister. We absolutely hurt his heart, and he sees it. We, we may think we're getting away with it. We may think others don't know it. But the God that I serve, I know that he knows and that. And 
and you can keep on saying you're sorry um, all you want, but until that other person comes to allows the Lord to work in his or her heart, it, it, I just I, I just think it's a sad shame because it really takes away, and the world sees that, and 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 the Lord said He said people will know your the world will know your my disciples by your love for one another. Well, there has to be some kind of demonstration of his love in order, you know, in order for that to take place. Anyway, I, I just thought, I, you know, it's just important in that. His love, that's the earmark of Christ. And it's the first fruit of the Spirit. And it doesn't go self-control, joy, peace. It goes love, joy, peace. And it goes down the line with the fruits of the Spirit. It's the first of the fruit. And that it's a scary it just kind of scares me i'm nobody perfect i got plenty of flaws anyway thank you oh well thank you for your comments on that uh yes and go ahead um i you know i'm getting ahead of joseph's story but um i mean as we see our lives are opening up and as god is doing things we see how you know maybe we we did something and and then it took 20 years, and then all of a sudden, whoa, something happened. Yeah. And, and then you say, oh, I, God has finally dealt with that. And, and it, it can be really hard. But um, with Joseph, in the end there, you know, I mean, I'm getting ahead of it, but uh, where he says, you know, his brothers meant it for evil, that they yes. threw him into the pit, but God meant it for good. And and so uh, you know they they do bow before him and even his father and everyone does in the end because it all came together and the story is continuing and the story is not done yet and I think another thing is even though Reuben did evil I mean they were all but Reuben was the one who said no let's not kill him because let's bring him back to his father's but you know but let's go get him out of the pit. So I mean, Reuben, Reuben, he did more evil later, but going in with uh, De, uh, Jacob's wife, I mean, his, you know, uh, that episode. But um, so Reuben had a heart, a bit of a heart, anyway, you know. And, but in the end, you know, they meant it for evil, but God meant it for good, and we need to say that sometimes with our own situation, you know, we really don't know what the other person's heart is or how they really you know how their heart dealt with that whole thing until 20 years later and then all of a sudden it it could hit you you know but you have to wait on the lord i mean there's no answer right now sometimes things are not resolved but you know it takes time for that other person really understands but yeah but uh the hurt thing is the hurt thing but we got to keep moving on. I mean, that's we can't just stay still in the hurt, you know, in yeah. the pain of somebody doing something. We got to keep on moving on. So that's my my. Did I make a comment to that point about because we're talking about Genesis? In part, we're talking about Genesis fifty verse twenty. You know, where um, what Joseph said, you meant it to something evil, but God meant it for good to the saving of many lives. I think that's how it goes. And that, but what what Joseph was really saying was, um, it was a kindness to bring. How do I say this? Um, 
there's the Hebrew rendering of it, and then there's the Aramaic rendering of it. It's like everything that the merciful one does, he does for good, to bring man into harmony with him. Joseph was saying everything that happened, he said, God did that to bring me into harmony with him. That's part of the understanding of that. And I, I don't claim to have all know all the answers, but it's just so very, very beautiful, so wonderful and beautiful. And that, and yeah, we have the hurt, but I think if others know that if you have hurt and they have any idea that they may have been a cause of that hurt, I think it's time to swallow the pride and the ego and humble and go and say, look, I hurt you and I'm sorry. And, and, and I think we can, um, we may not know for a while what we may have said or done with the Holy Spirit that lives inside of us is the one that guides us into all truth and shows us whether we're in error or whether we're right or wrong or whatever. He says, oh, Diane, you shouldn't have said that. Or you, you this is what really is happening in you. Or he, he gives us instruction within ourselves as what we need to do. I don't know if that any of that made any sense, but those things that, I mean, God wants to bring, there's a story about it, and I can't, it's just too long, but there actually is a, tra a traditional monument on Safed or Safed Street in, in Israel, in Jerusalem, uh, uh, to uh, the Gamzu man, and he was an ancient Tana, uh, an ancient sage, and um, he didn't have use of his... Um, limbs. They don't know whether that they were amputated or whether he was paralyzed in all four limbs. And he laid on a pallet and he had to have pans of water put around the side of it. People can look this up and, and that. It actually, it's a beautiful story. And, um, and the, you know, the people around him, they said, why? Um, you know, um, they asked him about his condition and everything. And he, and he said to them, he said, everything God does, he does for good. And so lately with a, a lot of high pain thresholds and a lot of hype, anyway, different things going on. And I, after I finished reading that story again for I don't know how many times, I said, Lord, let me look at it as, as everything is for good, even though that it hurts me. And that I wasn't going to bring Genesis 50, 20 into it until next time, but but yeah, since we kind of we arrived there, and that all the merciful one does, he does for good to bring this old girl into harmony with him. And um, sometimes it's a big alley, you know, it hurts a whole heck of a lot. Anyway, I think I'm done now. Thank you. Oh well, thank you. Well, that's a good way to end it. We're something we're be going to be talking a bit more about. Uh, next Shabbat, as we go through the Torah reading Miketz, which covers uh, chapter 41 through a good chunk of uh, 44 on this. And then on the one after, we'll be going through the end of the book of Genesis. But something to keep in mind as we go over these, these passages is, just like we were mentioning last Shabbat, how is it that we participate with the Messiah of being ambassadors of the kingdom of God. And a part of that being ambassadors is not just to, you know, as the old saying goes, truth hurts, just to hurt a lot of people with the truth. No, we are to be ministers of reconciliation. 
to basically sow, help sow the world back into the kingdom of God. Some people will want to tear the stitch out, but our role is to be you know, repairers of the breach, to be peacemakers, as Yeshua talked about there in Matthew chapter 5. So that's where we'll be headed here for the next couple of Torah readings on this. And one of the things to see, just as like we saw in this one, is how it is that what has happened before, the witnesses that heaven has given us before, will help us see about the future and also see about what has come before in the, um, the ministry of, the, of Yeshua. But also in the future is how do we face up to these situations when we encounter them? And when we also encounter these horrific things that are talked about as coming on the day of the Lord, we've already had examples of what these things are. Do we trust the Lord that these are the ways to stand up underneath it? Do we trust that? Do we trust that we can be like Daniel, standing up there to Babylon, standing up to Persia? Can we be like Yosef, standing up to Mitzrayim, to Egypt? Can we be like these ones have gone before us, like this? Can we be like those of the Maccabean era who said, no, you are taking us away from God, not toward God, but away from God. We can't go there. You know, you may do your worst on us, but we just can't go there because there's something worse than dying. Absolutely something worse because as some that have went through the Holocaust have said, hey, they can take away my life, but they cannot take away me. You know, they can crush my body, but they can't take away me unless I let them. If I let them take that away, oh yeah, they'll take it. So whether our challenges are small or whether they're big, will we give away who we are as sons and daughters of the kingdom of God? Or will we say that is the most precious thing ever? The, when you say love the Lord with all your heart, your mind, what drives you with your soul, your life, and your strength, your resources. Well, think about that. You know, they can take away your, your strength, your resources. They can take away your soul. Don't let them take away your heart. Don't let them take away what the Lord has implanted into us with the words of God. <laughs> Get better, not bitter. Yes, I love that one. You've been listening to a discussion at Hallel Fellowship. If you would like to hear more discussions or if you have any questions, visit the website at hallel.info. That's H-A-L-L-E-L dot I-N-F-O, halal dot info.